0: This is a glorious portion of Scripture Um, this is another sermon that I've entitled lower than angels crowned with glory because it gives us the sort of the perfect balance of what we're looking at here in the book of Hebrews the fact that Jesus the Son of God became lower than the angels that is to say that he submitted himself to a position of humility but because of his great humility he was exalted and he was ultimately crowned and bestowed with great glory with great glory all of this beginning in verse 5 is meant to sort of launch us into a different direction different direction and that is chapter 1 described how Jesus has been exalted, how he has ascended up to the right hand of the Father. He has taken his rightful place in the universe as the king and ruler of all things. And yet what this portion of Scripture makes very plain is, we do not yet see that. We do not yet see that. And so what what is going on now? Because we don't see that exaltation. And so very important for the author of Hebrews now is to place Christ and man in solidarity with one another, to unite us together to him. And that's what he does by reinforcing one more time a comparison, a contrast here with the angels. He asserts this idea that in verse five that he did not subject the world to come to angels, to the angels, and he's gonna point out Through the use of Psalm 8 how that Christ being the prototypical man of the Psalms how he fulfills all of this and so what the passage is going to give us is something very crucial dealing with both the humility and the exaltation of Christ and what he's going to give us here is now the plan the portrait and the purpose of Christ's state of humility or his humility what theologians called his state of humiliation. State of humiliation. So, first the plan. First the plan. It was always God's plan, his sovereign purpose to bring the world into subjection, which he has created to man. You remember the commission in the garden to Adam and Eve. He tells them, rule, have dominion. Over all the things that I've created, have lordship, if you would, over all the things that I've made for you. And then as a symbol of that lordship, you see Adam exercising his authority over creation, naming the animals, naming his wife. He was the prototypical uh, 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 vice regent, if you would, of God. He He was his kingly representative on earth. But he failed. He failed to subdue these things. And so what we need is a second Adam. Someone that will rule and govern all things. Someone that will rule and govern all things. You know, it may seem that we live in a world that is in chaos. And partly that's right. And I mean, just, you know, looking at the news this week, you got race riots in Ferguson. You got You know you've got Ebola in our back door here we've got Isis doing all of the terrible things that they are doing and you see as Luke says that men's hearts will fail them for fear of what is coming on the earth and it may seem that this is a world that is altogether out of control but you know it is not so it is not so God will not stand idly by as man blows himself into oblivion. Now, God will intervene. God will intervene because he has a great sovereign purpose that goes all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning of time mentioned, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that God is working all things out, summing up all things in Christ, Also, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. There we are told that God had an eternal purpose. Before you and I were even a thought, God already had a plan. God already had a purpose. God already had a design for the world that he would create, and that design was to exalt his son, Jesus, above all rule, all authority, all dominion, and here we are being told the world to come is not going to be a world that is governed by angels it's going to be a world governed by man at least that is the exegetical merit of this psalm where he says what is man now when the psalmist wrote that obviously he had himself in mind but we know that the psalm has a typological messianic fulfillment, and so it was ultimately pointing forward and away from itself. But it has a very uh, a, a poignant function in this text, okay? Because he's saying, "Look, the world to come will not be subjected to angels as glorious as they are." But we think, "Where does this come from? This talk of angels?" The world to come being subjected to the angels. I mean, would you talk like that? (laughs) If you were Jewish in the first century, maybe you would. Because this goes back, you see, to a translation out of Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 in the Septuagint, in the Greek Greek Septuagint, where uh, there the Jewish tradition was that God had given a certain governing power to the angels over the providences of man. And so you find, for example, in Daniel chapter 10, you have the prince of Persia, a demonic angel who has some sort of stronghold over a providence of man. And you have Michael, the archangel, fighting it out with the prince of Persia. And so very, very interesting here, this Jewish tradition. But what the author is making clear here is that the world to come will not be so. All government will, will will be relegated to the sun. All government will be under the dominion of the sun. And when he says here, the world to come, it is essentially the equivalent of what he says later in chapter 6, verse 5, the age to come. Chapter 13, verse 14, the city to come. In other words, the life after this life, after this world order is over and the new world order begins, the new age begins Christ will be seen to reign supreme. Now, a little bit of controversy. The age to come, as I understand it, has two components. There is a thousand year reign of Christ, and then there is a new heavens and a new earth. At least that's what you find in Revelation 20, verse 22. For example, first, if you go to Revelation 20, verses one, all the way to verse 15, where Christ is said to rule four or five times, For a thousand years, when Christ returns, he will destroy, according to Revelation 19, verse 20, he will destroy, when he comes back, the Antichrist, and he will destroy the false prophet. And then where do they go? Into the lake of fire. And then we are told in chapter 20 that... A thousand years of human history that will see the sovereign supremacy of Jesus Christ and then, after the thousand years is over, Satan, along with everyone who has followed him in one great final rebellion, will then be cast into the lake of fire, watch this, where the false prophet and the antichrist and the people who received the mark have been for a thousand years, they have been waiting for Satan to be thrown into the lake of fire, but it does not happen until after he reigns for a thousand years. After that is over, then God will usher in a new heavens and a whole new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Okay, that's as controversial as I'm gonna to get today. Verse five, some of you know what I mean. <laughs> It also has very important redemptive historical significance because Adam failed to take his God-given dominion you see and now Christ comes and he will subdue everything under his authority the world to come will be governed by Christ and his people his humanity his redeemed his race his nation people from every nation and uh, This was the plan for Christ to be humbled and then to be exalted. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This was a great mystery. This was a great secret that has been hidden in God for eternity past. If we can use that type of language. In eternity, God has been holding the secret in his being in his mind in the recesses of his own eternal decrees God has had this conspiracy all along this conspiracy is to humble and then exalt his son Ephesians or Philippians 2 I think is probably the quintessential crux passage that speaks of this talking about the son it says he existed in the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he had that. He's not seeking. When he, came, when he came in the incarnation, he was not seeking to be equal with God. He was already equal with God. But he emptied himself. This is the emphasis, the kenosis of Christ. This word empty is the Greek word kenosis, which means that he, he, he emptied himself. It means he laid aside, some would say, the independent use of certain divine attributes. Be sure and listen to that again. The independent use of certain divine attributes. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. In other words, it was all substitutionary, it was all part of the eternal plan of redemption. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. That's the crux of it all. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and he bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I think that's the divine title, Lord. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amazing, simply amazing that there is going to be such an exhaustive, fully extensive submission to the Lordship of Christ. All of the universe will see it. All of the universe will participate in it. You will either bow now or you will bow later. But the point that, that Paul is saying is you will bow. Everybody will bow. Every radical jihadist will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that Jesus is Lord. And all of his people will do it to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is why Hebrews can say ultimately of Christ, you have made him lower than the angels and then you have crowned him with glory and honor, verse 7. So the plan has always been this, the exaltation of Christ. The plan of Christ's humility in verse 5 is crucial to this whole argument. It appears that the son is in a state of humility. Indeed, he is lower than angels, which culminates in his death, verse 9. However, God's eternal purpose was never to subject the world to come, the plan. So here is the author of Hebrews looking way ahead, past this world, past this order, to the next world, the next age, the next order. And he says that there he will be crowned with great glory and we will rule with him. We, there's, a, there's a double, there's a, we could say there's sort of a double meaning here. Don't get, us, don't get alarmed. What I mean by that is simply that the exegetical meaning when it was first penned was a reflection on the psalmist's own transient humanness. He's reflecting upon himself and wondering, what is man? Why does God care about what little teeny, teeny little bitty man does? After all, God is way up there, you know? I've even had some unbelievers tell me that. Why does God care if I'm gay? Doesn't he have enough to have worry about? What does he care whether I live my life the way I want to live my life? He cares because you are his creature and you were created for his glory. You were created for his purpose. And let me tell you something. This verse here, this idea that manned Will be crowned that man though he was made lower than the angels for a little while crowned with glory. It also affects us because we with Christ will inherit all things and reign with Him. It's a, it's amazing how commentators are divided at this point. You take one commentary and what they want to tell you out of, of Psalm eight, quoted right here in this passage in Hebrews, is you need to stick with the literal humanity of the passage and don't get to the deity of the passage until verse nine. Then you have others that would say well it makes no sense not to interpret the passage christologically since that is the meaning of the passage anyway and so i tend to agree with both we we are the author wants us to feel both the implications for man and the fulfillment that comes in christ but it means to me that man was intended for a great purpose man settles for far too little in this world does he not man was intended for such a great divine cosmic eternal purpose a glorious purpose a glorious purpose to glorify God to enjoy him forever to be co-heirs with Christ and sadly some people are living for absolutely nothing living for futility Living for nothing, living for for sin, living for hopelessness, living for darkness, living for temporary sensual pleasure, living for nothing but the fleeting pleasure of sin, when they were created for something much, much greater than that. Now let's look at this portrait. So that's the plan. The plan was to always, always glorify the Son through humility, and through exaltation. Now, the portrait that is given to us is in Psalm 8. So turn there with me, because what Hebrews 2 is doing is he's quoting Psalm 8. So let's go directly to the psalm. This is an interesting psalm because it ultimately is a psalm about Christ and how he fulfills everything. It's a Christological uh, psalm, and it is very Important and, the, and crucial for this context. Notice the psalm is all about the majesty of God, the majesty of His name. Verse one and verse nine begin and end the psalm with the majesty of God's name. O, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth? You have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. Verse nine. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth oh i hope you say that in the bowels of your being i hope that you can say that with your whole heart oh lord my lord how majestic is your name you can't fake this kind of praise (laughs) right you can sing the songs up here but can you in the watches of the night say with the psalmist oh lord my lord How majestic is your name. The psalm is concerned with showing the wonder of God's name through, this is important, through the weakness of his people. And so that is where the weakness of the psalmist comes in. Verse 2 is where the psalmist declares that God is going to be strengthened even over his enemies through an infant-like people. It is through infants that God's strength is established. He uses a weak people, a seemingly insignificant people. And the psalmist begins to consider himself. Have you ever done that? Have you ever pondered how weak you are? Have you ever pondered how small you are? Have you ever pondered how seemingly insignificant you are, right? In the vast scheme of things. No, it's as easy as this. Just look up to the sky because that's what he does is he looks up and he gazes into the stars he gazes at the moon he gazes into the into the heavens and he realizes what am I says when I consider the heavens verse 3 the work of your fingers the moon the stars which you have ordained what is man Right? what is man you may be tempted to think when you look at such great things my life is insignificant but what this psalm does is that it redeems our life, it dignifies our life in the end. Yes, we are small <laughs> we are tiny, right We are a speck of dust when you consider all of the all of the calculations of the vastness of creation and the the, 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 the eons of time that it takes basically to travel from one planet to another planet from one end of the galaxy to the under end of the galaxy you begin to think wow what what is man what is man have you ever heard people say why is everything why if we're the only people here then why does all of this exist there's got to be something else out there You know what the problem with that statement is, and I've told you this before, but the problem with that statement is that that statement arises out of a misconception that man thinks that the universe exists for him. It doesn't exist for us. It exists for God. And so God gets glory of every aspect of every galaxy in all of the universe, of every dust. It is glorifying him. He delights in it even if we don't end up exploring it. He is the one that delights in all that he has made. Now, the psalmist also stresses man's benevolent pleasures, or or privileges, excuse me, his benevolent privileges and the dignity that God has given him. Look at verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet You have made him for a little while lower than God. And then the translation there of Elohim and the Septuagint is angels. And that's the proper interpretation. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him a ruler over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So you see what the the author of Hebrews is doing here? He's contemplating this psalm and he's saying, when does that happen? Because we've never seen that. We have never seen all these things under the feet of man. We have never seen man take such dominion over all things. If anything, we have seen the lack of that, the lack of it. And further, it expresses his dignity. Look at verse five. Yet you have made him a little while lower than God, and you crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish in the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. In other words, the psalmist is pointing out two things here. Number one, it shows that angels are not intended to rule over God's creation ultimately. Man is. And secondly, it shows that by applying this to Christ, how it is that God is going to accomplish this because he's already mentioned sort of the plan, the meta narrative of scripture, the panoply of scripture, the unfolding plan of scripture. The idea is that man is being, is called to rule over creation. Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where Israel failed, Christ succeeds. And if you go back to Hebrews, if you go back to Hebrews in verses seven and eight, The portrait that is given is both about the incarnation of the son and the exaltation of the son. So being lower than angels, that's the incarnation. That's the incarnation. And then the exaltation is you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. That word subjection is key because on five different occasions, the author of Hebrews refers to what is subject, subjection, 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 five times. You think he's trying to tell us something here in these four few, few verses here? Yes. He is talking about what it means for Christ to be exalted and how he does it. He does it by coming in the form of a man. He does that by his humility. That's the picture that has been given here. But the psalmist asks, how is this going to happen? And so we have to answer with the purpose of Christ's humility. So we have the plan, eternal plan of God. We have the portrait that man is depicted in the psalm as seemingly insignificant, but somehow he gets crowned. And so now the purpose tells us how man and ultimately Christ will be crowned ruler of the world to come. Having a proper understanding of this plan, we understand that the purpose is redemptive in nature, is redemptive in nature. And we're going to see this as you go back to, if you go back to Hebrews, if you're there already, verse 9. He says, We do see him who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so there is the redemptive purpose right there. But the difference of what the psalmist is asking right now is if man, you go back to verse 8 here, if man is crowned with glory and honor, why don't we see that now? Where is that? And so what Hebrews makes clear is that Psalm 8 is to be interpreted messianically, Christologically, only Jesus can answer the question that verse 8 raises. Israel never saw it. The people of Israel never seen all things subject under his feet, that psalm. But it's the diff- what, what verse 8 is doing, though, it is also preparing us for two things, the inauguration, uh, the inauguration of his rule and the consummation of his rule. In other words, the rule of Christ has begun. Uh, go back to chapter 1, please. Go back to chapter 1. When when you look at verse 3, you see a ruling, reigning, exalted Christ. Look at verse 3. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down. Where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? Which is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. Why is that important? Because, listen, folks. The New Testament authors quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, more often than any other Old Testament passage. Isn't that amazing? Psalm 110, verse 1, you better know it, because the apostles were saturated in that verse. And look at verse 13, he quotes it here directly. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a direct quotation from Psalm 110. And so no question, Jesus has begun to rule and reign as the exalted messianic God-man. But it's the difference between inauguration and consummation. So when he asks in verse 8 of Hebrews, when he asks the question, but now we do not see all things subject to him. Or he makes that assertion so in other words it kind of begs the question why don't we see all things subject to him because it has yet to find its consummate form that's why because we are waiting for the world to come where we will see the rule and reign and supremacy of Christ in all of human history and that is coming that's coming The Apostle Paul, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, makes the same sort of theological connection. There is an already not yet aspect to the reign of Christ. He is reigning, but we are also awaiting um, for all of his enemies to be abolished. Isn't this amazing? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, again referring to Psalm 110 And then verse 27, quoting Psalm 110. I wasn't kidding you when I told you Psalm 110 is used quite a bit in the New Testament. He must reign until, you see that? Until he has put all enemies under his feet. And that's what we're waiting for now, is for all of his enemies to be put under his feet. And the last enemy that will be put under his feet is death and that's what you see after the thousand years is over it says death was cast into the lake of fire (laughs) it's amazing the new heavens and the er the new earth will not consist of Christ reigning over his enemies because the new heavens and the new earth means all of his enemies have already been defeated and done away with so, in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no enemies to subjugate because he's already subdued them. He's already subdued them. So, he's saying, We don't see it now. Look at verse 8, back to verse 8, Hebrews 2 8. We do not yet see. In other words, that is the inauguration, right? All things subject to him that's consummation we do not see the consummation rather I could put it that way we don't see the consummate glory of Jesus Christ yet we don't see man ruling and reigning and having dominion over all things verse 9 says but we do see (laughs) this is great because if you're thinking yeah man look around this world is out of control you know what you're saying You're saying, we do not see that yet. Just like what the psalmist is saying. We do not see yet all things subject to him. But I would answer you the same way that the author of Hebrews answers his congregation. I would answer you by telling you, look at Jesus. We do see him. You see that? So to understand the nature of the coming age, look to Jesus that's what he's saying we do see him he was for a little while made lower than the angels right but then he says then because of the suffering of death he was crowned crowned with glory crowned with honor because of his cross work." so in other words it is all about it is all about the suffering of Christ what this tells me and you Is that Psalm 8 was written about the gospel when the psalmist talked about man being exalted oh I don't know if he wrote better than he knew but he certainly wrote about some magnificent things because what he was writing about was what needs to happen for man to be exalted and for Christ ultimately to be exalted what has to happen is something crucial in between And that is found right there in verse 9 that little phrase because of the suffering of death you don't find that watch go back up to verse 7 here in Hebrews 2 you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you guys following and then no explanation of how this happens next you have crowned him with glory and honor. So what the inspired author is doing is he is interpreting how that the gospel explains the transition in verse seven between lower to glory and honor and power and being crowned. Well I use the word "power because it just sounded good with that. But um, that's what's being described here he is crowned, he is glorious, he has honor, he is over. You see that? So, so he goes from being under, lower, and then look at verse seven at the end there, and you have appointed him over. <laughs> so how do we go from under to over? I'll tell you how we get there. The cross, that's how you get there. And it's gonna be like that just for every single one of us. We bear our cross before God exalts us before God will crown us with glory and honor before he will give to us as Revelation 3 says the right to sit on the throne with him talk about privilege We will sit on the throne with Christ, the throne of his Father. In other words, it's just a a metaphorical way of saying we'll reign with him. We're going to be brought into the powerful reign, dominion of Christ, and for all eternity, brothers and sisters, for the eons of time that are coming. We could say the timeless eons, (laughs) right? The mind-bending age that is coming, that is ageless, that doesn't age We are going to reign with him, but it's not going to happen unless we walk like Christ on the Calvary Road. We have to walk through it with him. And the beautiful promise here is we don't do it alone because we have a shepherd, right, that is going to take our hand. I've held people's hands in the hospital as they died and it is a magnificent thing to be a part of to know that you're there the moment a person slips into eternity and what's of greater comfort is that a pastor is not holding your hand if you are in Christ the great Shepherd of the sheep is holding your hand and he will walk you across the valley of the shadow of death and so that you have to fear no evil and so I can't wait to get to verse 14. I almost want to preempt this whole sermon and go to verse 14 and talk about Christ defeating Satan, who has the power of death because he has defeated him and we can be comforted, brothers and sisters, not that our death will be painless. Oh, it may not be. Uh, I forgot who said it, I think it was Archie Sproul or somebody said, some of the godliest saints he's ever known have died in some of the most horrific ways. We are not promised a painless process. (laughs) What we are promised is a glorious outcome. That's what we're promised, a glorious outcome so that we can face the process if we hold fast. And so this whole thing is redemptive in nature. Look at the way it ends. He is because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's an interesting way of saying it, don't you think? That, to me, that's a very interesting way of ending verse 9. Why does verse 9 end this way? In other words, death for everyone after being crowned with glory. (laughs) Well, exegetes have given their fanciful opinions on this, and very good ones. I don't pretend to have the final say on this, but um, I do agree with some of those that would say, it's, it's maybe it's because we first have to see what needs to take place in order for redemption to be applied to you, to me. In other words, the humility and then the exaltation of Jesus, that has to happen before he can taste death for everyone and apply it to you. And that makes a lot of sense. Or it can also function to stress the son's solidarity with his people. And I think that's a better, at least that's maybe a more immediate uh, answer. The answer is a more immediate question of what does verse... Nine or what does verses 5 through 8, what does that have to do with verses 10 all the way to the end of the chapter and this idea of him being with his people? Well, verse 9 ends us with Christ dying in our place. Now, I would warn here, I would make a warning here, similar to the one I made in Sunday school, where it says that he might taste death for everyone we should be careful not to see a strict universalism there. As a matter of fact, I think what he's giving us here, this is a sermon in itself. Boy, I tell you what, I almost made the decision to make this a one-verse sermon, <laughs> but I had mercy on you. So. But verse 9 is so powerful. It's a sermon to itself because right here, he gives us the, he gives us the, uh, the initiative of redemption. You know, I've got my points here. The accomplishment of redemption and the application of redemption, right? The initiative is found in the phrase by the grace of God. In other words, that is the fountain of the motivation of why Christ came to die and then be exalted. Grace upon grace. Grace is the reason that he came. Grace is the reason why he was made lower than the angels. Grace is the reason why he tasted death. Grace is the reason why he suffered death. Grace, the sovereign initiative of all of redemption. A good cross reference for you to read is Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He also speaks of the complete accomplishment of redemption. When he uses the word that he might taste death, you would say, That's an interesting way of. T-. So he just, you know, we're tempted to think he just tasted it, <laughs> right? Because in your mind, you're thinking, I can taste something, but not swallow it, <laughs> right? You could you could dabble in it but without fully experiencing it but that is not what the biblical idiom suggests over and over the Bible teaches the Bible teaches that to taste death means to experience the full range of what it means to die Jesus fully died That's what is really referring to, taste death. Jesus said there are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom or in his power, in his glory, right? So it means that you undergo the whole range. But also, here's the application for everyone, and it just doesn't do it justice because the Greek is a much longer prepositional phrase, the preposition pair for, or the way it should be translated more technically, on behalf of, on behalf of. It is on behalf of everyone, but then we have to make the exegetical um, decision, what do we mean by everyone? Because if you, uh, interpret this strictly in a universalistic way that what you're saying is that everyone will be saved because in the book of Hebrews for Christ to die for you means that your sins are forgiven for Christ to die for you it means that he was your substitute for Christ to die for you means there's no more wrath left for you right and so I think the context here is crucial follow with me Hebrews 2 Beginning in verse 9. He died for everyone, and I'm saying that is synonymous with verse 10, the fact that he would bring many sons to glory. Same thing, many sons. Verse 11, it is the same thing as his brethren. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Quoting verse 12. In a different psalm, I I proclaim your name to my brethren. It's the same thing as congregation. I will, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing for you. And then perhaps uh, the most important of all the phrases is verse 13 because it fleshes out the theology more. It is that I will put my trust in him and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So the everyone there is in reference to those that the Father has given to the Son. That is a perfect parallel to John chapter 6, verse 37, that all that Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, I will raise it up on the last day. And verse 44 makes it clear, clear, clear that those who are raised on the last day are his people, his followers. And so the comforting thing for you and I is that if Christ died for us, if he tasted death for us, it means that he will bring us to glory. He will bring us to glory. What a comfort this is. My question is this, what hope do you have outside of this? There is no hope outside of this, folks. He became one of us so that he might taste death for us so that we would not have to face death by ourselves alone, alone. Instead, we face it with him. He walks us through it, and apart from this, we have no hope. We have no hope. This is what's so glorious about this whole entire book of Hebrews is that the one who redeems us is no one but the son you see what the book of Hebrews is saying is that ultimately to display or to reveal to us God's revelation he doesn't send just another prophet he sends us the prophet his son Uh, to rule over us God doesn't just send us another wicked king like David or Solomon or anybody else he sends us his son who rules with a perfect scepter of righteousness and He doesn't send just another priest like Aaron just to make ongoing sacrifices for sin, but as Hebrews makes clear, he sends us his son to make a sacrifice once and for all, once and for all. If you are not trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sin, for your life, if you are not trusting in the suffering of death that he died, That means you will not be crowned with glory and honor. You will not experience what the psalmist was looking forward to, being crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because you don't have the gospel. And the gospel is the only thing that makes the the longing of the psalmist a reality. It is only through the gospel that the the suffering that Jesus died has any application for you. And so this is why the author of Hebrews is constantly pointing us to persevere, to endure, endure. Don't forsake your confession. Don't move away from your foundation. Don't drift away from this. This is so crucial and important that if you neglect it, you neglect it to your own peril. But the good news is that Jesus died he tasted death he he drank the full cup of the wrath of God in our place so that we don't have to if we trust in him this is Sunday school level stuff trust in Jesus you can't do it You can't die for yourself You're little, remember? The psalmist says, just look at the stars, look at the moon, look how insignificant you are. If God wanted to, he can snuff you out just like that, like the speck of dust that you are, or like the psalmist says, like the worm that you are. God could just crush you at any moment. So that you better be finding your refuge in the sun. That's it. That's the only place of safety in this whole world. Father, I pray that we would be safely hidden away in Christ. We know that we live in a world with many dangers. We know that we're living in a world with increasing difficult and fierce times, times that scripture warned us about, that were coming, that have always been. But Father, in our generation, they are here, they are front and center. We're dealing with it now. And Lord, where can we go to be hid from the storms of life, from the hurricane of sin that is becoming increasingly deviant, increasingly radicalized, and increasingly ubiquitous all around us? Where can we go for safety? Father, we thank you for your Son. Lord, Above everything, help us to know him. God, I pray the prayer of every person in here would be Paul's, Paul's own prayer, his own longing, that he would know him, that he wouldn't have a righteousness of his own, but that his righteousness would be by faith in the Son of God, that he would know him, the power of his death and his resurrection. And so, God, we pray, God, hide us away in your Son. Keep us close to him, Lord, Lord. Make us love him more. Make us live our lives for him more. Help us to tell others of him more. More of him, less of us. Like John the Baptist said, let us decrease and let you increase in our lives, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.